Investors Chronicle. Companies and Markets podcast, 9th of February 2023. Alex Hamer's in the studio. Hi, Alex. Hey. Alex Newman as well. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, very well. Uh, Julian Hoffman. Hello, Julian. Hello there, John. And Dan Jones hosting as usual. Coming up today, Dan. Hi, John. We start with the oil majors, BP and Shell, looking at the year they've just had and what could be coming in the year ahead. Then we turn to Unilever, which we discussed briefly last week. We're going to be looking in more detail at their figures coming up. And finally, we are going to be talking about the house builders, a few reports in the past few days, a few interim figures, and maybe some some greenish shoots there. Lovely. Before that, another week of news has been and gone. Here's some of the highlights from the IC's coverage. BP joined other oil and gas majors in revealing bumper profits for 2022. Their figure came in at around $28 billion, over double 2021's figures. The company also said it now aims to reduce fossil fuel waste by around 25% through to 2030, compared to the previous target of 40%. UK retail sales growth contracted in January as shoppers cut back due to inflationary pressures. According to KPMG and the British Retail Consortium, total UK retail sales rose by 4.2% in January, down from 12% uh, seen in January last year. The administrators of British Vault, the startup building an electric vehicle battery plant in Northumberland, are selling most of its business and assets to Australian firm Recharge Industries. Administrators said Recharge had been chosen following multiple approaches from interested parties. AIM traded oil and gas exploration business Deltic Energy has struck gold in British waters. Deltic said a well test had confirmed, quote, one of the largest natural gas discoveries in the Southern North Sea in over a decade, end quote, uh, with estimates putting the size of the gas deposit at 300 billion cubic feet, which seemed like a big number to me. And the FTSE 100 hit a record high this week, uh, just below the 8,000 point mark, and it's testing that figure again uh, today as we speak. It's up around 1.5% for the last five days or so. A few companies in brief to finish. Beverage giant Diageo has increased its stake in East African breweries, a branded alcohol company focusing on Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania. Defence company Avon Protection has landed a $6 million order for military helmets from the US. And finally, the tool hire company Speedy Hire has launched an investigation into £20 million worth of missing kit. Speaking of expensive tools, back to you, Dan. Don't know what to make of that. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna gloss over it. Uh, yeah, as uh, you helpfully said at the beginning there, John, uh, BP and Shell both uh, uh, reported record years last year, as you would expect, given everything that's been going on. The numbers are, are certainly you know outsized profits, if not excess, as uh, uh, critics would uh, undoubtedly say. Forty billion for Shell, twenty-eight billion for BP. But the big focus as ever is on the year ahead. Uh, Alex Hamer. You are here to discuss these figures, the outlook. What what can we expect in the year ahead? I mean, you know, is this a not quite a last hurrah, but certainly the peak? It's probably fair to say. What's you know, in brief, the outlook for twenty twenty three from a you know revenue point of view? Um, as I gaze into my crystal ball, mm. um, with highly accurate 
information about this year. I yeah, start with an easy question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to come to it seemingly the the third or fourth time we come in this sector for about four years. Um, third or fourth time that I'm forecasting a peak of something. Um, previously, it might have been um, oil demand 2019. Um, I guess the the peak of the oil majors is as integrated energy companies as we used to know them. Um, they've obviously come back around to that idea of being pretty pure play oil and gas companies. Um, and that's what we saw this week where BP um, shifted back some of its um, uh, emission reduction plans and, and those are operational emission reductions. So, you know, which is kind of a small part of their overall impact, but, you know, what that means in reality is that they, they want to be producing more oil and gas. Um, and for Shell, it's, it's certainly um, more gas. It's, it's, it's their strategy that they launched a few years ago um, with that BG um, purchase. Um, and they, under their new CEO, well, so on, you know, they're, 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 they're looking really bullish. Um, for investors, what that means is, is, is this year that we're going to see higher dividends. Um, BP surprised with its 10% dividend increase um, this week. Um, and, you know, the share prices have moved um, in response. Um, and I think what's interesting looking at, at forecasts, we do see um, dividends ticking up um, for BP um, and Shell um, in the coming years. And that's always been their model, really. You know, you go back decades and, and they just don't cut their dividends until, you know, I think Shell went from World War Two, the end of World War Two, to to two years ago before there was a dividend cut. So that's that's traditionally been their model and they look to be embracing that. Um, and for context, you know, to go back to your peak question, Dan, which was what you were really asking for an answer for, um, this this really is, um, at least in the in the in the short term, um, kind of a, a high watermark for these companies. I think analysts you know, this is kind of probably well over a dozen or two dozen analysts, have, have, you know, with the consensus that 2022 was the, was the high watermark for, for earnings, um, profits, but, but as I've just said, not, not so much dividends. Um, the, the other factor there is, is the buyback programs. So that's, that's where they're throwing this extra free cash, um, you know, for, for investors and that's increased the return significantly. But yeah, it's interesting. You see, look at the free cash forecast for the next few years, and you know they are going to shrink a lot. So all that that figure is going to shrink. So for BP, for example, um, it's free cash flow over the next um, three four years. It's going to go from it was it was twenty two point seven billion um, last year, and it's that's going to be halved um, within two years or within three years. So you know. This really was a, a pretty extraordinary year. Yeah. I, as you say that, I mean, there are some interesting operational uh, decisions being made at the same time for the year ahead. The obvious one being the scaling back of those green ambitions, as you and John touched on. I, how does that, maybe if we sort of get into BP's thinking a bit more there, because on one level, you know, it's obvious the energy supply situation has changed over the last year. So they're thinking, well, actually, you know, our forecasts for that decline might be a bit misplaced, which may be why they're now saying, you know, come 2030, we'll have less in uh, renewables than, than we thought. Equally, you know, the, the company, it, uh, you know, its shareholder returns are quite a bit lower than Shell. It seems funny saying that when you produce 28 billion, but uh, um, 
but when but when you look at shareholder returns, you know, Shell and in particular the U.S. majors are quite a bit higher, which you know there's an element of windfall tax in there. I suppose BP has more UK operations, but also it's because it seems to me that those companies are more highly valued by investors at the moment because they are still pretty much fully geared into you know the fossil fuel bonanza, if you will. So I mean, BP, it, it, you know, it had the good share price reaction this week. They uh, management going to be partly thinking. We want to align ourselves actually, you know, after a few years of trying to be more ESG friendly, we want to actually align ourselves with, you know, the US majors, with Shell a bit more and just say, look, we're going to really go for this on, on fossil fuels still. And you saw the share price reaction. So that seems to be what investors want at the moment. Yeah. And it's and it's this seemingly this um this approach that really values our immediate part, really. You know, this year, this past year. You know, there's been such a focus on energy, energy security, and we've seen the impacts of there not being enough oil and gas in the market. You know, prices for everyone have gone gone way up. Um, at the same time, you know, the the a lot of the pressures that brought on these these lower carbon strategies from from three years ago haven't gone away, but you just have less pressure from governments and certainly from investors um, in terms of cutting emissions and, and taking responsibility for the for the end use emissions when these these products are burnt um but you know we've just seen a, a new case come into the, the british courts this week that where the directors um of shell um will face um you know more scrutiny for, for not sticking to uk climate goals i'm just going to fact check myself because it might have been bp it was Shell. No, it was Shell. Shell. The, yeah, client, cool. the Client Earth. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the Client Earth court case. And I think, you know, for institutional investors, there are some who have joined this court case, but there are others who have pushed a long time for uh, a balance between continuing to invest in oil and gas, um, but not too much, obviously, because you don't want an oversupply, um, and throwing a bit of money at, at, at next generation. Um, you know, earnings generators, basically. I mean, there's never been a sense that um, a few wind farms and a hydrogen plant will replace the, the cash generation of extracting oil and gas. Um, there's just no chance that'll ever happen. So we're, we're in this kind of middle stage, and, and I think we've swung fairly strongly from, um, you know, one crisis state with the pandemic where dividends were cut, um, strategies were changed, and now we've gone the other way and you assume that we will find some middle ground which will be acceptable to perhaps um, a retail investor, obviously not someone like Client Earth um, or Greenpeace um, and perhaps also not acceptable or, you know, the, the perfect position for um, a really bullish on oil and gas um, investor on the professional level. So perhaps that middle ground is... Is is a bit more comfortable for the retail investor, though. Yeah, they are they are trying to thread that needle, aren't they? I mean, the the capex spend for next year, unlike Shell, is does seem to be going up a little bit, and they have said uh, by twenty thirty, as well as scaling back those ambitions, they will invest. I think it was eight billion in transition businesses, eight billion more than they previously said. Also, eight billion more on oil and gas investments. So I suppose that sums up the the balance they're trying to. Trying to strike, yeah, and it, and we've already seen it. I mean, Shell basically had a complete reserve replacement um, 
well, not not a hundred percent, but they basically replaced everything they extracted last year um, through exploration and acquisitions. So they're this this process, and that's a continual process um, for these companies because you know they have to stay in operation this way. Um, but you know they're already they're already thinking about that, and I think Shell certainly has a bullish on gas specifically um, CEO through the door now who. Um, yeah, might make different decisions, and he, he's certainly facing a different set of pressures than than Ben 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 Burden, um, who left in at the end of December. So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting stage. I think I think yes, this is a peak in terms of profits, um, and also potentially a peak for 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 governments laying off on the um on the emissions rhetoric um as well. So, yeah, but there, there's certainly plenty of cash to come for investors. Yeah. Alex Newman, do you have any thoughts? BP Shell. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that stood out for me um, in both results was the um, just the performance of their, their trading division. So not just about capturing price, um, uh, sort of spot price uh, windfalls, really, from the last year's spike in, in gas and, and oil prices, but how um, their trading divisions and their sort of their downstream divisions just just yeah just absolutely drowning in cash last year and i i, I suppose some element i mean all elements of their the, these businesses are hard to predict when it comes to um cash flows because they they do depend really on um very unpredictable markets um but the you know the the level you know i think it's, it's something at the same time that investors can't rule out even if there are some signs that you know uh profits might be peaking or it's hard to see how a confluence of factors like the past years could be so you know so supportive again this year or next year to um to their profits but um it's always you know it's always kind of the option there which kind of get it can be overlooked easily because you know they you know i think the uh the core the the products division that bp had they generally they sort of triple their profits to over 10 billion um uh in 2022 and that's you know that 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 is kind of acts as a an accelerator for the other things they want to do, like bring down their bring down their debts, for example, which they've they've taken an axe to in the last year, uh, and they say they want to do more of that. Um, I mean, the current the, the it, you know even if even if free cash flow is is um, is peaking, I think they're now guiding for nearly fifty billion of of cash profits by twenty twenty five, assuming seventy dollar oil. Um, and they're already on an enterprise value to cash profit ratio of less than of, of two point five. So this, you know, that could fall a lot further if they take a, a further axe to their their debts, their interest payments are coming down. Um, you know, and they, you know, they, they might look cheaper still in in a couple of years' time. Uh, but yeah, as as ever with this sector, you know, you know that's assuming there's not an oil price crash or you know something goes disastrously wrong for one of their wells so um it's 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 so high risk but at the same time you can understand how you know how people see the opportunity um in their near-term profits i suppose well let's turn to another dividend stalwart now unilever which had full year figures out today uh it's a similar story to what we've seen over the past few quarters volume still under pressure pricing able to offset that pretty effectively for now uh, we get a little bit more detail as you'd expect, as you'd expect, with the full year figures on what could be coming for the year ahead. 
which seems to boil down to uh, a bit more margin pressure, perhaps. Uh, we can come on to margins in a minute. Uh, also, though, you know, some discussion of how how long inflation is going to last for consumer goods companies, which does seem to be the big question of 2023 and when that when that pivot will come. Uh, Julian, Unilever, what are your thoughts on how the business has been holding up? We had a pretty good year last year, all told. How do you see these figures? It wasn't too bad. I mean, I was a bit disappointed that there was no sign that they are going to change their name to Procter & Gamble. Um, but apart from that, uh, they seem to be managing the worst of the inflation environment. It's actually now down to how consumers re will react. I think I don't think Unilever can do much more uh, than it has done into into this uh, situation. Um, but the, the the new chief executive definitely has a lot to do. Yeah, so he's he's moving on from the you know a few sort of strategic errors that the company made and. Uh, they're guiding actually for a decent amount of 2023 growth. So they're looking at uh, sort of three to five percent um, sales growth for 2023, which, on the basis that uh, you know a lot of that is going to come out of um, under pressure consumer goods, so is not bad at all. So I mean, it, it, it was it was all right. I mean, you you can't you can't complain on on that basis. Just really, what impact? The, the new manager that's going to have uh, when it comes down to it. But um, we'll see. I mean, that's obviously a question of, of time, really, rather than, than predictions. Yeah. I, some of the underlying issues for the business, as we say, there is that that uh, split between volumes and, and price, you know, pushing through double-digit price increases each quarter is a testament to the brand, if, if you want to call it that, but it does come at some uh, volume expense. So far, the volume's been holding up pretty well. Uh, you might have expected, I think, more people to have shifted to private label alternatives, which is always the big fear for this sector, especially in a time of soaring inflation. But that hasn't really happened to the same extent as some people might have thought. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how people experience inflation. I mean, uh, whether they, whether some people's pay packets have kept up with, um, uh, have kept up the prices, is is a completely different, completely different question. Uh, that certainly seems to have happened in America. We're not quite sure if that's the same um, uh, here in the UK. But, uh, yeah, the input costs, uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, their input costs are actually going down slightly, although they're still at a relatively high level. Um, and, and the outlook is still volatile. So it, none of that adds up to a great deal of uh Visibility, which is really what how the market reacted today, it wasn't particularly up or down. Um, but they, you know, they they can't really guide, they can't really guide to anything particularly until they have more idea of what their input costs are going to look like. And I mean, that isn't likely to happen before the first or first quarter of this year. Well, that becomes a bit more clear. I oh, yeah, I would have said, but uh, certainly in terms of the analyst community, it seems the two things they're waiting for are one margin pressure and there's some suggestion that that margin reset did already happen last year with uh you know the pricing pressures and various company specific pressures we have seen which would tend to be you know if that does bear out if that peak or if that trough in margins has already happened then that's quite different from previous recessions i think it tends to happen a little bit later on so it's quite hard to see how that will play out but then the other big one as you say is is um inflation price growth i think the big analyst hope has been given the way certainly soft commodities have been uh falling in price the past few months the big hope has 
being that come the second half of this year, we'll see those inflation figures rolling over. We'll see prices therefore start to roll over as well. There's always a bit of a lag, so that could give you know a boost to margins, a boost to uh, top and to, and bottom lines. So far, I think you saw it again with Unilever today. I think the CFO said we've seen the peak in inflation, maybe, but not the peak in pricing. We've got a lot of consumer goods companies reporting in the next few weeks. They're probably going to say something similar. But then it is in their interest to be very cautious on pricing because when you think about these companies, when we've seen a lot in recent months, haven't we, with the likes of Tesco getting into arguments with Heinz, things like that. It's in consumer goods companies' interest to say that pricing is still difficult and they have to put these through because as soon as there's a perception that we're at this peak, the retailers are going to be all over them and say, right, we want price cuts now. We need you know, some of these prices to start. If not coming down, then, you know, introduce some discounting, some offers. So so there are challenges there. Well, it all comes, it all comes down to how much are you prepared to pay for Dove? <laughs> so what's, what is the optimum price for soap? Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it should be... I mean, the gold standard will be Procter & Gamble when they report. And the companies are always put side by side. Um, and we'll see whether they've managed their um, cost base and their price rises better than Unilever. I mean, the, the betting probably will is that they they have when they when the results come out. But um, uh, yes, it's it's another chief, chief executive you don't really envy. It's a, a very difficult turnaround, long term turnaround that he has to do that. Mm. And he's kind of coming in midway through in that a decent amount is in the price. You could argue with Unilever. You look at some multiples. It had a good year last year. EV to EBITDA is looking, you know, relatively fully valued versus peers, partly because they've begun this turnaround. They've had an internal reorganization. Uh, there is a lot of hope that that will bear fruit. They've shown they can resist pricing strains last year. So it's quite hard for them. And they've, you know, had the boost from Nelson Peltz being on the board as well. So it's quite hard to come in and you've effectively got to deliver on what the market and a lot of investors are already hoping and pricing in. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much the difficult point for an investor is how what's the run going to be after this, because uh, I mean they're a little bit below their their long their sort of five year average, so they're trading at seventeen times earnings at the moment, uh, where the average is about ninety. Um, so the, the the amount of value left in it is is marginal, and it's it's really going to be about how they kind of manage expectations so that they can get back to where they should be, as it were. I don't know if, and 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 there isn't, as far as I can see, not a lot left in it, if that makes any sense. Uh, I was going to say, just on that point, the, you know, the 17 times versus 19 times doesn't sound like a big um, difference. But I, I suppose the, you know, for UK investors, or any investor, really, the, the, the really important thing about that 17 times number is, um, is you know what it translates to in, in terms of earnings yield so like 17 17 times forward earnings is an earnings yield of just below six percent and if you're an investor right now you can get you know you, i mean gilts aren't uh fantastic they're sort of three and a half percent ish depending on um uh depending the uh, depending on how long you're holding them from uh for rather but like u.s treasuries which would be the real benchmark for most big investors looking at Unilever right now um, are between sort of four and a half and 4.8%. So Unilever shares offer a, a one percentage point premium for all the risk of running a business and the challenge of passing on all these price 
rises to a possibly fatigued consumer um it's it's, it's really not it's it, yeah like I, I i agree i think it's so much of it is in the price really there's not a lot of value left on the table unless you're taking a very long-term view on uh and i, th- I think it's amazing we've got this far without talking about mayonnaise because i feel like we've talked about mayonnaise so many times in the last year but um yeah that you know the growth options for for the business um and maybe that has just to come from from new products new or, or new acquisitions which we've not really talked about but Div- know, divestments as well are a, yeah uh, you know on, on the uh or certainly on the uh table again it seems or, or certainly being talked about with a new chief exec you know a way of realizing value just on the earnings yield it's quite interesting i was talking to one of our other colleagues about that this week where you look at many different sectors and asset classes and assets right now, and you know you compare them to the risk-free rate, and there hasn't really been that repricing that you'd expect. You know, not just consumer goods, but everywhere. You know, the earnings yields are. You know, that spread is far tighter than it was, and you just wonder if if that's going to change, or or if people are are happy to still buy shares for a, just a little premium, which you know would be kind of contrary to arithmetic in a lot of cases and investment philosophy but there hasn't been as big a kind of gapping out as you might have or as maybe i expected given how far bond yields have moved well i think it's probably because the rotation has been quite long lasting isn't it so what, what were perceived as value shares have sort of dragged on for you know half a year longer than everyone expected um so that's left the the, the yields a bit bit tight i mean it does make you wonder if if they don't if nobody reaches their targets, whether the 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 uh, the sell off could be quite um, quite quite sharp in in that sort of situation. I don't know what everyone else thinks, but um, yeah, that's what it came across to me. But crystal balls at the ready. It's another uh, <laughs> well, I don't. Want to, I'm going to say we will see because I like to say that. And who can possibly say? For now, things are still doing okay, right? But uh, speaking of which, we should turn to our final section of the show, which is a uh, uh, house builders where, as I perhaps, you know, optimistically said at the the top of the show, this week some figures come through where signs of, you know, green shoots, it's probably far too early to say that, but certainly January trading, January completion reservation rates across the sector have been a bit better than December, which on one level you'd expect, given mortgage rates are coming down a bit and maybe, you know, the recession we are anticipating will be shallower than was thought a couple of months ago with energy prices also coming down but at the same time we know we know you know there's gonna be trouble ahead a lot of that is priced in alex you've covered this sector in the past alex newman what are your thoughts on the you know the the slight improvement again it's a very short period of time to look at as well but you know maybe a slight sign that house prices might not be falling as much as we thought and therefore the investment case for house builders might be fractionally better than what's been priced in uh yeah tough one i suppose i suppose just to you know link it to our previous section you know there is the risk that in with when it comes to equities um and and risk assets that people are looking two two stages ahead whereas with when it comes to the house building uh, house builders and sort of the uk property market we're very we can be very short-term focused and everything is through the you know the the prism of um of uh i suppose month on month price falls or rises and and you know the the things which you know you'd think would really really drive this sector are demand and supply which um you know those fundamentals really didn't dictate um how the share you know shares in the sector performed last year um 
because you know even if the government has rode back on its on its 300,000 ho- new homes target um it you know that there, there is still a wall of demand out there and uh, you know there's a lot of you know a lot of what it seems that the central you know bank the bank of england moves have been about accommodating uh our sort of property heavy economy there are, so you know there there are definite reasons to believe that it it will be a better year for the house builders um i don't know if i thought it was you know there's ft headline saying that the the house builders rallied yesterday on on barrett's results it looked a, a little bit more cautious than that to me um partly because i think i think the the people running these businesses really don't know how things are going to shake out in terms of house pricing even if they 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 sound a bit more confident on things like input costs and and you know wages and and the other overheads they've they've had to digest over the last um year or so so yeah i'm going to sit on the fence for this one to be honest but um, i i you know i i mean demand is not going away even if affordability is you know a much bigger issue than it was even a year ago when 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 it was an issue so um yeah, I'm perhaps asking too much for everyone. <laughs> asking Alex, no, no, you have asking to ask Alex for the uh, the VP and Shell dividend outlook, and asking you for the house price. Uh, uh, you the know, interesting quote that Chris uh, Chris Dillay, um, formerly of this parish, um, <clears throat> said recently that actually the the key driver behind the market at the moment is not supply so much as the interest rate. Mm. So, uh, what a lot of the house builders are noticing is that the the tail off. Uh, towards the end of last year when people were digesting higher rates and uh, that was partly what suppressed some appetite for buying new houses and i mean there are ever there is sort of anecdotal evidence of, of oversupply i mean um barrett for example is offering according to um some reports that barrett is offering like free carpets if you buy one of the houses which uh, some people say is a bit of a sign that you're overpaying probably for the house uh, you should probably wait until they offer you a free car. I think that would be the that would be the sign that you want to buy one. But um, yeah, so I, I think at best you could say the whole picture is is mixed, isn't it? You can't you can't definitively say where the market's heading because each uh, each builder's individual experience seems to be very different, and also depending on on how much mortgage the the customers are, are carrying. So uh, as we I think we noted that people like Red Row. Uh, seem to have a customer base that doesn't have mortgages whereas you know people like barrett or persimmon they'll be the ones uh, whose uh, whose clients are more exposed to how the, the rate the rates are moving um so yeah it's uh, it's a it's a curate tag i suppose is the, the way to, to look at it a good input i was going to come on to the, the difference or certainly between the the three reporting uh in the past few days barrett redrow bellway again alex I'm gonna I'm gonna try and uh, eke out some more opinions from you on their their relative resilience or otherwise. I mean, is it is it is it as easy as that? Uh, as Julian correctly notes, that you know Redrow has got fewer first time buyers. About a third of their book or transactions are mortgage free. I think uh, you know you would think that would give them the edge, but it's not as simple as that. Perhaps I'm not sure. Yeah, no, but I, I think it's definitely an advantage if you can you know if you've got a uh, if you've got a, a customer base which is able to buy in cash and you know i think a lot of the commentary over the last year has been that those with the cash will do well out of this housing market correction however far it it goes um 
I mean, you know, Barrett, Barrett's numbers, I thought, still looked, you know, even if the outlook is very uncertain, you know, there's, they're still, with what they've got, they're still earning good returns. They're sitting on a lot of, of net cash, which, you know, it's, it's not a bad position for a business to be in that they're, they're looking to sort of, uh, you know, wear down their, their cash position through dividends and share buybacks. Uh, and they're still earning, or at least in the half year, uh, the six months to the end of December, they earned a return on 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 capital of thirty percent. I mean, most most business uh, leaders would sort of bite your hand off for those sort of returns. But um, it's just I, I find yeah, I do find it hard to square the you know the strength, the underlying strength of these businesses with um, with I suppose the market's opinion that. I suppose it all comes down to how many years of long, uh, you know, continuing pain they they think they're gonna they're gonna have to suffer. Um, I yeah, I, I mean it's it's you know as to the differences between them, they're they're selling, you know, they're selling similar products, you know, with or without sort of bonus carpet offers. Um, so I I think I think putting one between you know. Uh, you know, saying that one one company is uh, is likely to do tremendously better than the other is um, is a difficult call. Um, so yeah, I, I I mean, yeah, I mean the you know the dividend the dividend's going to come down a little bit just because they're so they're they're both well covered and they don't need to give so much away in cash necessarily. Um, they might focus a little bit more on buybacks. Um, uh, yeah, I mean those were those were my yeah, sort of eked out thoughts. I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it is very early in the year, uh, and as ever, I think we're just trying to challenge prevailing wisdom. We'll see if there's any cracks in there, and and you know, the the picture is evolving. It might be a little bit better than it was a few months ago, but who's to say where we'll be in a few months' time? We will uh, keep you posted on developments in all the sectors we have covered today, from consumer goods and housing to the oil majors. Uh, I should also say that this week. And the IC is our bargain shares issue, so do look out for Simon Thompson's 2023 portfolio uh, in your latest copy. But that brings us to the end of today's show. So thank you to everyone, to Julian and to both Alex's and to John. And thank you to you for listening. We'll see you on the next Companies and Market Show. Mm-hmm.